Good evening, listeners. It's December 16th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Paget-Cobb. And I'm Heather Forsyth. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more, you can visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Dan Brycey from the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics. As part of his master's degree, Dan is working on cancer-related research. He studies the mechanism of action of a drug commonly used to treat many different types of cancer called doxorubicin. This drug has been on the market for many years, but how it works to treat cancer is not fully understood. And that's what Dan is working on. Hey, Dan. Hey, Lillian. How's it going? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Can you tell us more about what it is that you study as part of your master's program? Yeah, of course. So like you said, my research is primarily based around a cancer drug called doxorubicin. Doxorubicin is uh, fairly ubiquitous. It's been around for about 40 years and it's used to treat just a lot of different kinds of cancer. Uh, But one of the problems with doxorubicin as a drug and in general that type of cancer drug as a whole is the fairly significant side effect uh, that causes severe heart problems. So doxorubicin is great at killing cancer, but if you get it in high enough dosages, it's going to cause you severe heart problems. Uh, these heart problems are bad enough that it's got the nickname the Red Death, which when you're getting a drug, that's not really what you want to hear from the doctor. Yeah, we prescribed you the Red Death. Uh, and there's a decent body of work out there that suggests that these cardiotoxic side effects aren't actually caused by the drug itself. Uh, but they might actually be caused by a metabolite of doxorubicin. So essentially, the body is digesting doxorubicin and chemically modifying it into this metabolite doxorubicinol. And there's evidence that doxorubicinol is what's causing these heart problems. And this is actually really important because if this is true, and we think it is, that means that the anti-tumor properties of doxorubicin itself might not be linked to these cardiotoxic side effects, which are caused by doxorubicin all. And so in essence, if we can find a way to stop the body from converting doxorubicin to doxorubicin all, we might be able to keep all of the anti-tumor effects of doxorubicin without any of its cardiotoxicity. Hmm. And so my research in particular, we're working on identifying what enzyme or enzymes in the body are performing this chemical reaction. Uh, So enzymes are a class of proteins which catalyze chemical reactions. And uh, in this case, we're looking for the one that's catalyzing the conversion of doxorubicin to doxorubicinol. So this enzyme that you're potentially looking at, this is found in cells in the body. And so it's helping to speed up this chemical reaction that's occurring once people take the drug, doxorubicin. Exactly. So the enzymes for this particular process are most likely found in the liver, which is where the bulk of sort of 
uh, this sort of metabolism would take place. And so in essence, when you get treated with doxorubicin, it ends up in the liver where it encounters this enzyme inside the cells of the livers, and then this enzyme can convert it to doxorubicinol. So do you have any potential candidates of what enzyme is uh, creating this toxic metabolite? Yeah, so uh, a bunch of diff couple different enzymes have been suggested as candidates for this. One of the more promising one that's been around in the literature for a little while is an enzyme called carbonyl reductase one. Uh, and so our general approach to studying this problem actually sort of revolves around the fact that we have a couple target enzymes in mind. We're not just starting from scratch trying to identify an enzyme. So uh, we're, for example, studying carbonyl reductase one, which I'll just call CBR one from here on out. And so to study CBR one's role in this chemical reaction, we first start with a liver, specifically a mouse liver. Uh, then we go through the process of essentially breaking open all of the cells in that liver and consolidating their contents into what we call cell lysate. And so this lysate contains all of the enzymes that are present in a mouse liver and they all, all those enzymes contribute to all the chemistry that the liver can perform. So then our goal is to selectively remove CBR1 from that cell lysate. And then with that done, we can essentially look at the ability of the lysate as a whole with and without CBR1 to produce doxorubicinol. Hmm. And so the end, result, the end goal there, if CBR1 is responsible for causing this reaction, then when we remove it from the lysate, we should see that that lysate is no longer able to create doxorubicinol. Can you tell us how you are specifically taking CBR1 out of the lysate? We're using a technique called immunoprecipitation. And so we're essentially using the, the body's own natural immune system, uh, more specifically antibodies. So antibodies are the body's way of recognizing foreign substances and binding to them and then attacking them with macrophages and destroying them. So what we specifically did is we have uh, generated antibodies against CBR1. So we've used the immune systems of rabbits to create these antibodies, these particles that bind to specifically CBR1. Then using those antibodies, we can essentially have all of the CBR1 in the lysate, stick to those antibodies, and we can pull them out of the solution, leaving the rest intact. So one thing I wanted to clarify, a little piece of jargon in, uh, you mentioned metabolites, and that's basically the that's the compound that is produced as a result of the chemical reaction, right? So that's the result of doxorubicin being converted into doxorubicinol. That's a metabolite. Um, just to clarify a little bit of that. So doxorubicin has been used as a drug for many years, and it's, so its mechanism has not been fully understood, but it's been widespread in use. So it's sort of this kind of conundrum, it seems to be, where you can maybe not fully understand how a drug functions, but that doesn't make it not useful in the clinical setting. Right. As far as doctors are concerned, you know, if they have this substance uh, and it kills cancer cells without killing the person, then, you know, on some level, they don't care that much how it works. You know, if it works, it works. But 
you know, one of the benefits behind understanding how some things work is you can work on improving its function, right? So obviously a lot of that's been done over the years. Uh, doxorubicin is actually a derivative of the compound that was originally isolated from bacteria, which is called donorubicin. And then throughout the years, there's been a couple other modifications, variations on this same class of drugs that have come to market. And all of those represent attempts to essentially build on and improve this class of drugs. So based on what's known about its structure, its shape of the drug itself, then based on that, it's possible to design other drugs that may also target the same enzyme, potentially? So, uh, like I said, the one of the end goals of this research is if we identify the enzyme causing this reaction, let's say it's CBR1, then a new drug could be developed to specifically inhibit the activity of CBR1, which would essentially prevent it from producing doxorubicin all while you're being given doxorubicin. So this would be a separate drug that would be sort of co-administered while you're getting this chemotherapy treatment. As for the actual structure of that inhibitor, that's going to depend a lot more on the structure of CBR1, and it might not look anything like uh, doxorubicin at all necessarily. Can you tell us a little bit about what you have found so far throughout your years here? Yeah, sure. So uh, like I said, we've identified CBR1 as a likely candidate, and you know, I've spent a couple years working on successfully removing it from these cell lysates, confirming that it's been removed, working on a good way to detect how doxorubicinol is being produced. And after all of that, we've done a decently thorough set of experiments that leads us when we remove CBR1 from these cell lysates, we see that they make less doxorubicinol, but they only make about 20% to 20 to 30% less doxorubicinol. And that's really interesting because kind of what it suggests is that when you get rid of CBR1, you get rid of doxorubicinol. So CBR1 is contributing to the production of this cardiotoxic substance. But the fact that a lot of that activity remains in the lysate means that there are other enzyme or enzymes uh, also performing this chemical reaction. And so there's a lot more work to be done identifying what those potentially are. So that process of identifying an enzyme seems like a really complex task. And can you explain for us how that process of whittling down your enzyme candidates, what that actually looks like. Yeah, sure. So we've actually taken a couple steps in this direction. So identifying an enzyme from scratch is tricky because there are thousands of different proteins, different enzymes that exist in any given cell. And so, you know, starting from scratch and picking out which individual one is causing something in particular can seem a little daunting. But uh, biochemists have traditionally used a variety of different teaks to purify and isolate different uh, proteins and enzymes based on their activity. So, for example, if you're starting with the whole cell lysate and you're just interested in a certain subset of the enzymes contained in there, you can use a variety of techniques to fractionate and separate these enzymes based on physical properties and then see where the activity goes. So as a classic example, there's a technique called size exclusion chromatography, where you essentially separate all of the different enzymes and proteins in a solution based on their size. And so you could run size exclusion chromatography and what you'd be left with is that total lysate has now been separated into a bunch of different fractions, each of which contains proteins of a certain size range. 
then you can take those fractions and see if they can produce doxorubicinol. And then once you identify which fraction of fractions has doxorubicinol, you can move on to maybe another separate step and separate those enzymes based on another set of physical properties like their charge. And so based on a number of, you know, you can do this, you know, you have four or five iterations of this process and eventually, in theory, you end up with your one enzyme that is contributing to this activity. And so when we've done this, we've taken initial steps on this. We, our first step was to fractionate the lysate uh, with ammonium sulfate. And so this, the way this works is uh, when you add ammonium sulfate to a solution, certain proteins will precipitate. They will fall out of solution. They will no longer be water soluble at different concentrations of this salt. And so you essentially bring the solution to a certain concentration of ammonium sulfate, collect the proteins that fall out of solution at that concentration, and then gradually increase the concentration in steps and see which proteins fall out of solution there. And so when we did this, we found something interesting, which is that uh, our CBR1, first of all, we found which fraction it localized to, and that fraction did make doxorubicinol like we expected. But there were other fractions which contained no CBR1 at all, which still made doxorubicinol. So those fractions would be where we would go to if we wanted to continue this purification and hopefully identify what enzyme in those fractions is making doxorubicinol. So let's say that you identify a brand new enzyme from one of these fractions. What are the limiting steps from finding this fraction to eventually testing this enzyme and seeing uh, at the step that you are at with CBR1, for example? So if we were to use the similar technique, this immunoprecipitation technique on just a brand new target enzyme, probably the biggest uh, time spent in that would actually be developing the antibodies specific against that uh, that enzyme. So that, that process works is you first have to uh, purify this enzyme in some way. Uh, so you have the pure solution of the enzyme and then you treat rabbits with it. You essentially inject it into rabbits and let the rabbit's natural immune system develop these antibodies against this new foreign body you've introduced to it. And that process takes about six months just because it takes a certain amount of time to for the rabbit's immune system to grow and develop these antibodies. So the rabbits are essentially being vaccinated? In a way, yeah, that's very similar to how vaccines work is your body is uh, preparing antibodies against the viral particles ahead of time so that they can react against it if it's exposed to it again. We're essentially just doing that, but with foreign protein, in this case, CBR1. What's interesting is that even though you might isolate an enzyme and it appears to do the reaction on its own, when, when you encounter the complex interior of the cell, it sort of unfolds that it's not the only player and that there are other potential contributing enzymes or factors that complicate the process. Right, and so we use the terms uh, in vitro and in vivo to uh, discuss that sort of difference between there. So CBR1 was found to, when you have it purified in solution, it performs this reaction very well, produces a bunch of doxorubicinol. Another enzyme we were interested in is related to CBR1. It's called carbonyl reductase 3. Uh, similarly, it was shown that when you have purified CBR3, it can produce doxorubicinol, albeit less efficiently than CBR1. Uh, but when we went through the whole process of immunoclearing CBR3 from our cell lysates, we found that it made no 
no difference in the ability of the lysate to make doxorubicin. Also, CBR3, even though if you have it in a test tube, it can make doxorubicin. It's not actively contributing to the doxorubicin being produced in a liver cell. Cool. So the end goal of this, to reiterate, is then to the moonshot, I guess, would be to develop sort of an inhibitor of the enzyme that is responsible for catalyzing this conversion of your original drug from the to the toxic byproduct. And so by implementing this series of steps and analyzing the reaction and the mechanism, it can be possible to identify how to inhibit that enzyme. So that's the overall goal of what you're trying to do. That would be long after I'm gone. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, yeah, go ahead. Can you uh, <laughs> tell us about how you ended up here? What was your background coming into grad school? Why OSU? Yeah, sure. So, I got my undergraduate degree at James Madison University in Virginia from the East Coast. Uh, and I got my bachelor's degree in physics with a concentration in biophysics. So, I've kind of known for a while that the end goal, my ultimate plan is to go to medical school and become a physician. And with that in mind, I studied physics with the concentration in biology and biophysics. And over the course of my time there, I realized that although I really enjoyed sort of the hard, uh, quantitative, analytical aspects of physics, the classes I was really enjoying going to were the physiology classes, the biology, the biochemistry. And so when I was looking for a graduate program to attend, because spoiler alert, Definitely didn't have uh, the grades to get into med school right out of undergrad. Uh, I was specifically more looking for a biochemistry and biophysics sort of program to, because I wanted to pursue uh, my newfound interest in that area while also maintaining a connection to you know what I liked about physics. And so that brought me to Oregon State. And I reached out to the faculty here and they seemed thrilled to have me on board. And so that went a long way to my decision to come here. So one thing I'm wondering about is, do you feel like your background in physics helped you to have sort of a different perspective on studying uh, biochemistry and biology that was uh, beneficial to you? I think it does. I don't know how much I would, you know, how directly I could say that it that it helps. But, you know, there have been... Mm, there have been concepts and stuff that I think have uh, been like they they're interesting and they come a little more naturally uh, when you have that sort of fundamental background. So, so your long term goal after you're finished here with your master's program, and you're finishing up pretty soon, right? Yeah, I'm planning on graduating in the spring. Okay. So your long term goal then is you're looking at med school, mm-hmm. and so what has that process been like to navigate the of that experience of preparing for applying to med school MCAT all of that with your grad school responsibilities oh it's a huge pain (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, so applying to med school is kind of a long drawn out tedious process and then you know on top of that as a graduate student uh, and as a researcher Research is expected to be, in a lot of ways, a full-time job. I don't know anybody in my department or any graduate student, really, who works anything less than a 50-hour week at a minimum. And then on top of that, you know, uh, 
I get a salary to teach uh, through our department. So that's another chunk of time and stress on top of all that. And then you throw in studying for the MCAT, taking the MCAT, doing all these different uh, applications. It was a lot and it was really hard at times, but I'm really fortunate that I have a very strong uh, support network actually here at Oregon State. Heather, by the way, is one of my best friends. Hello, Heather. Hello. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, with the support of all the people around me, I've, you know, gotten through it all. Right. And so, like, beyond that, what are your, your long-term, of looking in the future, do you have any major long-term goals that you'd like to share or... I don't really think past getting into med school. That's yeah. sort of the big one right yeah, now. It's kind of hard to plan too, too far into the future when you have sort of the next three, four years are all still sort of in flux and unknown. So that's goal number one. And then I'll figure out what I actually want to do fully with the rest of my life once I'm there. Absolutely. Great. So one thing we do on the show is share a piece of advice, ask you to share a piece of advice and... Uh, this can be geared toward yourself before you started grad school or someone maybe who is looking at starting grad school. And um, yeah, do you have anything to share? Yeah, I'll talk to myself from, let's say, my first two years in college. Uh, and my advice would be to stop being really lazy uh, and work a lot harder so that uh, your grades and everything are good enough to apply to med school right out of undergraduate. Like I said, didn't really have that. And a lot of that is it just took me a lot of time to, uh, I, I guess, mature in a lot of ways and develop study techniques and a learning style that worked for me. And I definitely could have used uh, some words of advice or to be yelled at in my first two years of undergrad. So that'd be fun if I could turn back time. I guess that what I guess a question that I have for you, and this may be hard to answer because you're not in med school, but... Do you think your time here at OSU getting a master's degree, do you think that has better set you up to prepare for that process? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, yeah the, the stuff I've learned in classes and firsthand through research has been absolutely fundamentally important to applying to medical school. And if and when I get into medical school, it's pretty much because of what I've done here at Oregon State. So 100%. That's awesome. So our second tradition on inspiration dissemination is to play you out on a song. So can you tell us what song you picked and why you picked it? I picked the song One Week by the Bare Naked Ladies, and I picked it because it is my go-to karaoke song whenever I go out for a few, for a few drinks. Uh, it's a great song. Okay. Awesome. Yes, well. always a good one. All right, so thank you so much, Dan, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Lillian. It's been, yeah. it's been fun. Here's One Week by Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> 